0: Go ahead and pull that out. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you kind of drop it open to the middle-ish, you'll be in Psalms, and then just back up a little bit, and you'll find Esther. I want us to start um, by just kind of recapping where we are in, like, the narrative story of the book of Esther. You might be joining with us this morning for the first time online, you might be joining us here, and you're kind of jumping in. Mid uh, midstream on this, and so just so we're all kind of in the same place in terms of what's happening in this story. If you've got yourself to Esther chapter seven and you want to flip, you can kind of go back to the first chapter and just catch the high points with me. But what's happened up to this point is that there's a king named Ahasuerus. He is the ruler of the Persian Empire. He's throwing himself a really big party when the book of Esther starts. At the end of that really big party, he throws himself another party to celebrate how great the first party was, and he asks for his wife, the queen, Vashti, to come in so that he can show off his wife to all of these military officials that he's got gathered there. It's like a war council that's happening in the middle of this this large celebration. Vashti, his wife, says no. No. That angers the king, and so Ahasuerus gets together with some of his advisors and his buddies, and they make a decision that they're going to remove Vashti from being queen, put this rule out throughout all the kingdom that every man is to be the ruler of his own home and yada, 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 Uh, which becomes ironic later in the story. But Vashti's no longer queen, that's chapter one. In chapter two, This war has taken place that the first party was on the front end of. They lost. Esther, the book, doesn't tell us that, but history does. The Persian Empire lost that war. Ahasuerus is sitting around one day, and he remembers Vashti. It's been a few years. And he thinks to himself, what happened to the queen? Then he remembers what he did to the queen, and he thinks, we should get a new queen. So he has all of these women brought in from all over the Persian Empire so that they can do this kind of weird version of, like, Persian bachelor, whereby he'll work his way through all of these women and decide which one is going to be queen. Well, Esther, a Jewish woman living in Persia, is brought into that scenario. She's got a family member, Mordecai, who's taken over as her guardian because Esther is an orphan. And he tells Esther, don't let them know your Jewish identity. Hide that. And so Esther goes into this program. She ends up winning the king's favor. She becomes queen over uh, the Persian empire alongside King Ahasuerus. Right after that happens, Mordecai, her family member that's now her guardian, uh, overhears a plot of some people that are gonna assassinate the king, has that passed on, saves the king's life. It becomes a big deal. Enter this guy named Haman. Haman is one of the king's officials. Instead of Mordecai getting rewarded for saving the king's life, Haman, for reasons we're not 100% clear on in Esther chapter three, he gets a promotion. Everyone is supposed to like bow down to his greatness. And one day as Haman is walking by like the city center, he sees Mordecai, this Jewish man, and Mordecai won't bow. It enrages Haman. What we learn about Haman is that he is all about recognition and significance and being seen as important. And when Mordecai won't bow down and give him the recognition that he deserves, it fuels this unbelievable rage inside Haman. And instead of just taking it out on Mordecai, who Haman knows is Jewish, Haman makes a decision, I'll use King Ahasuerus and have all the Jews in Persia killed. So he issues an edict to have that happen. That's Esther chapter three. In chapter four, Mordecai, who is in all kinds of distress because his people are going to be killed, goes to Esther and says, you need to go into the king and plead on behalf of your people. And Esther's like, I thought I was supposed to hide the fact that I'm Jewish. What do I do now? Have all the Jewish people fast and pray for me. And at the end of three days, I'll go into the king. Chapter five, Esther goes into the king. She should be killed for going to the king uninvited. Instead, he tips his golden scepter. She lives, she approaches the throne and says, hey, could we have dinner together? Bring Haman. Uh, okay, so they go and they have this banquet. And the king says, Esther, I'll give you whatever you want, even up to half of the kingdom. Esther says, why don't we just have dinner again tomorrow night? Bring Haman. Well, in between those two feasts, a couple of things happen. Haman goes home from the first dinner, passes by the city, the city kind of governmental center again. Mordecai doesn't bow again. Haman decides this time, I've already made a plan to kill all the Jews. Now I'm going to kill this particular Jewish person who has enraged me twice in a very specific way. And he builds this giant 75 foot spike on his front yard that he's going to impale Haman our Mordecai on the same time that that's happening the king can't fall asleep and he has one of his servants come and read a book about his reign as king to him in the middle of the night and while they're reading through that they come across this part where the king's life is saved by this guy named Mordecai and the king says what do we do to honor that guy and the servant says nothing and that doesn't sit well with king Ahasuerus so he goes out into like the courtyard area of his palace and he's looking for someone and Haman's there and he says Haman What should we do to honor someone that the king wants to honor? And Haman, who thinks, that's gotta be me, says, why don't you dress this guy up in your robe and your crown and set him on your horse and parade him through the capital here and announce his greatness to everybody. And the king says, awesome, Haman, you do that for Mordecai. And it's humiliating for Haman to have to do that. He goes home after that and he's incredibly distraught and his wife looks at him and says, look, Clearly, your downfall has begun. God must be, Yahweh, God must be on this Jewish man's side. And now that your fall has begun before Mordecai, it is certainly complete. That brings us to verse 14 of chapter six that says this. While they were still speaking, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. That's banquet number two. That's where our story picks up in chapter 7. We're going to look at all of chapter 7. It's 10 verses long. And we're going to get a close look at the difficult side of what we've been talking about throughout the book of Esther. We've been talking about God's sovereignty, the fact that he has not just the ability and the power to control all things in the universe and on earth, but that he actually uses that power in order to do so, and his Providence. The fact that oftentimes in ways that we can't even see, God is orchestrating the circumstances of our lives and the world in order to achieve his purposes. That's what Esther displays. God is sovereign and he works providentially. It's easy for us to celebrate that when we see something like God's people being rescued we say, oh yeah, absolutely, God is sovereign. It's easy for us to celebrate God's sovereignty when the circumstances in our life all come together. And like, uh, just the other day, I was hearing the story about how a husband and a wife met and the circumstances were absolutely wild that brought them together. And like, we applaud that. God is sovereign and providential and it's good and it's wonderful. Or when everything comes together and you get the promotion or you get into the college that you were hoping for or whatever the case might be. There's There's a second side to that though. Because sometimes events happen in our lives and the circumstances are not so sweet. They taste very bitter or very sour. And it's a lot harder to applaud God's sovereignty and providence in those circumstances than it is when everything works out in our favor. Isaiah 55, eight and nine says this. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. When we experience or we see someone else experience something difficult or painful or broken, it's much harder to affirm that God could be working sovereignly and providentially and ultimately according to his goodness in that. We're gonna look at Esther chapter seven through two tracks this morning. Uh, Through Esther and through Haman. If we would celebrate that God is working according to his plan and his purpose with his power in the circumstances surrounding Esther, we would also have to be willing to say that God is doing the same thing in the circumstances that surround Haman. It leads us to some difficult questions. There's some bitter circumstances with Haman, some very sweet circumstances. With Esther, and it's the same God who is sovereign and providential. Here's gonna be the landing point this morning it's this that when we cherish the sweetness of God's sovereignty and providence, it allows us to trust God in the bitterness of his sovereignty and providence. Look at Esther chapter seven, let's just read it together. It says this The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth uh, burdening the king king Ahasuerus spoke up and asked queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? And as soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs said, there is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house where he, that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Let's just kind of recap the story together. Haman and King Ahasuerus go to Esther's second dinner. For the third time in just three chapters here, the king says to Esther, I'll give you whatever you want. Two times before this, Esther has delayed. Come to dinner. Come to dinner again. This time, there's no delaying. She finally tells the king what she wants. Save me, save my people. If you've got a Bible in front of you, flip back to chapter three. Esther actually uses the same words as the edict when she asks the king for her to be saved. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If you look at Esther three, verse 13, it says this. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate. It's the same Hebrew word that is used as exterminate in chapter 7. All the Jewish people. Look up at verse 8. Notice that in what we just read, Esther doesn't say who those people are. She just says, my people. In chapter 3, Verse eight, we're told this, then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. When Haman made his decree and used King Ahasuerus to do it, note that he didn't tell the king which people he was talking about. Simply that there was a group of people that it would not be in the, best, the king's best interest to tolerate. And the king said, okay, here's my ring. Go ahead and write that up and send it out. So then Haman goes to another group of scribes. They write this decree in a bunch of languages and it's delivered everywhere in the kingdom. When Esther goes in, in chapter seven, king says, what do you want for the third time? Notice, she doesn't tell the king who her people are. If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. Spare my people. This is my desire. Esther and only one other person at this point in the room know that she's Jewish and it's not the king. It's Haman. It's like in that moment, Esther looked at the king, said, spare my life, spare my people, and then a little side eye over at Haman to say, you know. But in the same way that you sold my people into annihilation without telling the king who we were, I will save my people without telling the king who we are. It's not until chapter eight that she actually reveals the fact that she's Jewish and that's the people that are being spoken of. She does to King Ahasuerus what Haman did, which is use him to do something to the Jewish people. In this case, it's to save them. The king asks, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a plan? Translation, for the king, this isn't about the fact that they're about to kill an entire race, ethnicity of people, right? For the king, this is who threatened my wife? Who would do this? And Esther's done being subtle, no more delaying. It was Haman. The king stands up, He's absolutely enraged. He leaves and goes and storms around in the garden of the palace for a little while. And while he's doing that, Haman realizes that the the jig is up here and he tries to like fall down in front of Esther to beg for mercy. And while he's in the process of falling down before the couch that she's reclining on, the king comes back in and sees. And he says, how dare this man Haman actually violate the queen in my presence? And that gives the king his out to do something about Haman. There was something in Persia known as harem law. Laws and rules that were made around the women that were in the king's harem. One of those laws was that no man could be alone with a woman in the harem when the king wasn't there. So when the king left, Haman should have left. He didn't. That was mistake number one. There was another law within that harem law that said that no male could be seven steps away from a woman of the king's harem, even when the king was present. There's Haman falling down on the couch that Esther's on, transgression number two, right? Like seven steps away from some, like that's Persian social distancing there. You stay seven steps away from the women that are in my harem. And what is the law, uh, the punishment for breaking that law? It's the punishment that seems to apply in all of Persia for breaking any law, it's death. So someone walks over, covers Haman's face. One of the king's eunuchs looks at him and says, there's a giant spike on Haman's yard already. And the king says, perfect, put him on that. And that's where chapter seven ends. Remember, since the king's sleepless night at the start of chapter six, the story of Esther is just undoing itself. Haman's rise began when a Jewish man, Mordecai, wouldn't fall down in front of him. And now Haman's ruin begins when Haman falls down in front of a Jewish woman, Esther. Haman's plan for getting rid of Mordecai was this giant 75-foot gallows on his front yard. The king's plan for getting rid of Haman now is the gallows on Haman's front yard. One more important piece of the story. This is where I want us to start to take this and like how do we rightly apply this and what lens are we looking at here? Haman, similar as we saw to Ahasuerus back in chapter two, he regrets the consequences of his sin. He's unhappy about what has taken place because of his sin, but he's not repentant. We saw that with Ahasuerus. He regretted what happened to Vashti and the fact that he didn't have a wife anymore, but he's not like repentant over the way that he treated her. The same is true here for Haman. And it's because of something that is true universally. And that's this, that in our brokenness, we love our sin and we struggle against God. That's a good definition for who Haman is. He's a perfect picture of that. Loves his sin, struggles against God the promises, the precepts of God. He hates the result of his sin, hates the outcome of his sin, has regret over the consequences of his sin, but there's no repentance. Why? Because he loves his sin. I've used a similar illustration to this before, but uh, I was doing a little bit of research um, and for every one lion, that's in captivity in America, there are 10 lions owned privately as pets, which seems totally absurd. I go to the zoo, I'm looking through the glass, I don't think to myself, one of those in my living room sounds like fun. But some people apparently do. And so you bring one of these you know, small, kittens, if you will, into your house. And look, I don't know if you knew this about cats, but your regular domestic house cat is already planning the destruction of the world. That's, that's just like who they are as creatures. The reason why when you walk into a room, your little kitty cat, JK Meowling, goes running out of the room is because Your cat doesn't want you to see their plans for your destruction and their plot to take over the world. So they skitter on out of there as fast as they can. You bring in a lion who not only is planning the destruction of the world because it's a cat, but also has the power to physically destroy you. That thing is, in the words of Matt Chandler, an apex predator. It's hardwired to do one thing. Kill and eat. And so it's not a surprise that... Those pets grow up and at some point you hear these stories about the lion that's lived in the living room for its whole life turning on the owner or the family that owns that thing. What happened? They coddled a killer. That's what it is. That's what a lion does. And then when that thing grew up and became a killer, they looked around like, who could have predicted this? right? Anyone that's ever seen a lion before, that's who could have predicted that. And when our sin coddled, fed that idol, when it blows up in our face, causes absolute destruction in our lives, we look around like, who could have predicted this? Easy answer, God, and also any human being that's ever wrestled with their own sin before. And so we see this play itself out in a ton of different ways. Men who have a constant, repeated struggle or addiction to pornography. And in high school or college, they think to themselves, I'm really trying to battle through this, but when I get married, this will just go away. Well, then they get married and they discover that's not how it works. That sin still exists in their lives. And then it comes to light at some point in the middle of their marriage and everything blows up in their face and they're looking around like, who could have predicted this? You've got a consumerism idol and you just, you're spending and you're spending and you're spending and you're plunging yourself and your family deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. And it starts to create tension and expose cracks in your marriage. And all of a sudden the tension of that feels like it's just blowing apart your entire family. You look around and you think to yourself, How could I have possibly known this was going to happen? That's what sin does it ultimately destroys. At some point, that little thing that you thought was cute and you kind of petted and coddled in your living room grows up into being a killer. And it will ultimately destroy one day. And the reality is, in our fleshliness and in our brokenness, we love our sin. And we wrestle, we struggle against the reality of God. Why? Well, because God loves us enough to be opposed to our sin. And those things come into collision at some point. A full understanding of sin is really important here. So let me just do a little, dig- a little digression. Sin is anything that opposes God's preeminence, so his superiority, his purposes, and his precepts or his laws. Most of the time we think about sin as breaking a commandment, transgressing God's law. Sin is anything that contradicts God's commands. That's a fair definition of sin, but it's not complete. Sin's more than just doing something that goes against God's precepts. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Yes, Adam and Eve sinned when they ate from the tree that God told them not to eat from. They transgressed God's law, his command. But where did that sin start? It didn't start with the behavior. It started with an attitude. You can be like God. That's where that sin began. In that case, the sin is against God's preeminence. Rather than honoring, obeying, and worshiping God because he is supremely worthy, Adam and Eve thought to themselves, we can be like him. We sin when we do the same when our attitude is such that we lower God's superiority, we sin. Sin, first and foremost, is a heart condition, one that wrestles with the reality that God is to be superior in all things. Why do we disobey God's commands? Because in our sin or in a sinful moment, we don't actually believe that God, who is supreme and has authority and is good could possibly create his commands with our goodness in mind. We think that they're restrictive. And so we say to ourselves, I want to be superior, preeminent, make my own rules. So I'll do what it seems good according to me, in my own eyes or in my own heart. So then a moment of sin actually arises out of this place of wanting to lower God's authority, lower God's goodness. The same is true when we go against God's biblically or scripturally revealed purposes. Let me give you an example. God has commanded that we are to share the gospel with all nations. That's a command. But his eternal purpose is that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will know, love, and worship him. So not to take part in that as followers of Jesus, sharing the gospel to the ends of the earth is to sin. It violates God's purposes. Why would we stand against God's purposes? Well, because if he's not superior in all things then why should his will override my will? And that's when you find yourself in a standoff. I know that God is about fill in the blank, but if I'm not making him superior in my life, why would I give a rip about what he wants? I want what I want. My will will win. That is sin. So again, think about Haman. In our brokenness, we love our sin and we struggle against God. Who wants to be the center of attention? Haman. He wants all eyes on him. That's sin. When you try to make the universe with you at the center and everything else orbiting around you, serving your good and your desires, you've placed yourself above the role and the preeminence of God. That is sin. Who stands in opposition to the purposes of God? Haman. Haman. In Genesis 12, God says he's going to preserve his people in order that through the line of Abraham, the Jewish people, all the nations of the earth might be blessed. What's Haman's plan? Get rid of all the Jewish people, Abraham's descendants. That's sin. Does Haman have any issues with his sin here? No, he just has regret over the consequences. And so he falls down in front of Esther. That's typically the case when we're just swimming in our own brokenness, before we've met Jesus or when we're giving ourselves to our flesh and our brokenness rather than submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit and the process of sanctification, as is typically the case when that's happening, we love our sin. Where does loving sin and standing in opposition to God lead Haman to ruin? Where does loving sin and standing in opposition to God lead any human being in the history of the world, either in Esther's time or in our own, ultimately, eternally, to ruin? Notice the other side of the story, though. Let's think about Esther for a minute. Haman's sin is leading him to destruction. Esther's courage is about to lead the Israelites to deliverance or rescue. After All of her subtlety and delaying in chapters five and six, in chapter seven, she just cuts straight to the point. She's finally asking, save me, save my people. If you were a Jewish person who's reading through this story or hearing the account of it, you would think to yourself, finally, we're getting down to it now. Esther's going to finally step into what it is that God has brought her into this moment for That Esther 4.14, maybe you've been brought to your royal position for such a time as this. A Jewish person is reading this saying, about time. We're finally going to be used by God to fulfill his promise to preserve his people. We see the Lord's work through Esther, positioning her in this moment, working the circumstances in this sort of way. And we say confidently, God's providential. He's sovereign. Look at how good he is to fulfill his purposes. And yet, the other side of the equation also has to be true. Everything that happens in Haman's life can't be solely a result of his decisions, while everything that happens in Esther's life is solely a result of God's sovereignty and providence. That's illogical. It doesn't make sense, nor does it line up with everything we see about God in scripture. The reality is that in the, the book of Esther, Israel's rescue required Haman's ruin. And that is an intellectual, theological, emotional challenge. It's challenging when you read something like the book of Esther. It's challenging when it happens in our lives or when we see it happen in somebody else's life. It's easy to look at Esther and say, look at God's goodness and his providence. It's much harder to watch Haman being led to the gallows and say, look at God's goodness and his providence. Or maybe you find yourself in this position. You look at Haman and you think to yourself, dude totally deserved it. So I don't have any struggle with the fact that he's about to die so the Israelites can be saved. He got what he deserved. Made his own bed. Now he's going to lay in it. To which I would say, if you're a follower of Jesus, how many times since you placed your faith in Christ, received his grace for salvation, have you made a string of decisions where you made your own bed and God and his goodness withheld the just punishment that your sin should have deserved? I will speak for myself all the time. If you wrote the story of my life, like you wrote out Haman's section of his life here, there would be moments where everybody would be reading it, thinking to themselves, that dude deserves it. Put him up there. In Esther, the person, providence tastes really sweet. In Haman, it tastes really bitter. Go back to where we started. God's working everything according to his plan in agreement with his purposes and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. That's the literal wrestle of Job to his wife after he's lost almost everything in Job chapter two. And he looks at his wife and he says, shall we accept only good from God? Remember the big picture here. The point is not to just like have the courage like Esther. The point is not that Esther's this moral example that we should all just follow in the footsteps of. There's something bigger happening here. The preservation of Esther's life means there's still a chance for God's people to be saved. The elimination of Haman means there's still a chance that the Jewish people are saved. In a big picture way here, what we have are two groups of people. Those who stand opposed to God, his preeminence, his purposes, and his precepts, and those who are God's people. That's what the story of Esther is pitting against one another. It's not really Ahasuerus versus Esther, Haman versus Mordecai. It's two groups of people. God's people that he has promised to preserve and those who would try to stand against him. Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham about his descendants. God says, go out from your land and your relatives, your father's house and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Notice the promise. I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. What did God just do? Literally fulfilled his promise. That's what happened. Esther chapter seven. Haman has been treating God's people with contempt. And what does God do? Deuteronomy 12 or 21. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Where does Haman end up? Impaled on a 75 foot wooden pole. Providence and sovereignty are bitter for Haman. God's faithful to exactly what he promised and what he purposed. It's extreme in Haman's case. We see it in our own lives in ways that don't have us standing face to face with an object of capital punishment. There are moments in our own lives where circumstances come crashing in and they taste incredibly, incredibly bitter. Life gets really, really hard. The diagnosis isn't what you were hoping it would be at the doctor. The family situation totally blows up and now you're estranged from someone that you love. The situation at work doesn't go the way you wanted and the promotion doesn't happen. The big thing that you were hoping to receive good news about comes back and it's totally the opposite of what you were hoping for. The thing that you've prayed for for decades continues to not happen and it tastes really, really bitter. And we stand there and we say to ourselves, couldn't this have been done a different way? Couldn't God work this out some other way that's more favorable? And tucked away in that question is the thought that something, if something doesn't make sense to me, it must not make sense at all. If I can't reason out why something happened the way that it did, or why something is happening the way that it is, then there must not be a good reason. What did Isaiah 55 tell us? We don't see and think and act the same way that God does. Tim Keller says it this way in his book. um, Why am I blanking on the title of the book? Tim Keller says it this way in a book. (laughs) The reason for God, there it is. Just because you cannot see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen does not mean there cannot be one. If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped bitter providence in the world, then you have at the same time a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue. Here's one of the things that's difficult when we come across hard circumstances in the Bible. Sometimes they come about because a person made every decision that led them to that place. That's Haman. Haman up to this point has made every decision necessary to land himself on the gallows in his front yard. And yet at the same time, God is sovereign. He's working providentially, and Haman is totally responsible for his decisions. God is acting sovereignly. Haman is acting individually, and in perfect harmony, a way that's higher than our ways, both of those things work seamlessly to lead not just to Haman's end, but the accomplishment of God's purposes. The same is true for Esther on the positive side. God is sovereign. Esther's totally responsible. God is acting providentially. Esther's acting individually. And everything works seamlessly to lead not just to the deliverance of God's people, but also to what happens in Esther's life personally. And the same is true for you and me. Sometimes what comes into our lives is difficult and we brought it on ourselves. And our individual responsibility and God's sovereignty are working hand in hand In the bitter situation we find ourselves in in life would be like looking around like Haman and saying, I did everything to deserve this. Other times we find ourselves in situations where life is very, very bitter and it feels like we did nothing. That's more like Job. I did nothing to deserve this. And yet God's acting providentially and in perfect harmony with a way that will accomplish his purposes in me or you as an individual, but also in the world. And the struggle of walking with Jesus and living in relationship with Jesus is understanding that God is good in all of it. That his goodness is screaming out from any and every situation. In our sanctification, we learn to love God And struggle against sin. Whereas in our brokenness, we love our sin and we struggle against God. Once we're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up root inside of us and grace starts to do its amazing work in us. We start to learn how to love God and struggle against sin. If I'm going to sing one song repeatedly from up here over the course of my time as a pastor of this church, it will be the song of grace, like a broken record. It is grace that gets us to this place. Even in the middle of your sin, God loved you and hated your sin so much that Jesus went to the cross in order to save you from it. In the book of Esther, Israel's rescue required Haman's ruin. In the gospel, our rescue required Jesus's ruin. What kicks off the rescue of God's people in Esther? It's her willingness to identify with those marked for ruin, the Jewish people. What kicks off God's rescue of his people in Jesus? Jesus's willingness to identify with sinful humanity marked for ruin. But it doesn't end at just identifying with us. For Jesus, it ended at substitution. It would be as if in the story of Esther, all the Jewish people were supposed to be hung on that spike in Haman's front yard. And Esther went into the queen and said, put me there not them. That's what Jesus did in our place. In the middle of our sin loving, idol feeding, sin coddling hearts, Christ died for us. God proves his own love for us in this that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5:8. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's Galatians 3:13. While I was coddling that little killer and feeding that little hoarder inside of myself, Jesus drank the full cup of God's bitter providence in order to display to me the overpowering sweetness of his grace. And he did that for you too. Until we learn to truly cherish the sweetness of that grace, we will always doubt God when life tastes bitter. When we cherish the sweetness of God's sovereignty and providence, it allows us to trust God in the bitterness of his sovereignty and providence. Learning to look at the cross and see God's goodness despite what might be happening momentarily in our lives is what it means to be gospel-centered. We talk about that a lot here. What is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? First and foremost, we are centered on the gospel. It means that the grace of the gospel is what operates at the core of who we are it's what fuels our love for jesus what empowers our obedience to jesus what inspires our action on behalf of jesus what sustains us when life feels broken and jesus feels absent it's what reminds us that ruin is never final for the people of god it's what gives us hope that though we have been rescued by the work of christ on the cross rescue ultimately and fully is going to come when he returns again Grace is what produces within us a quiet confidence and a joy that cannot be shaken despite our circumstances. We look to the cross and we see Jesus. Then we keep looking to the cross and we keep seeing Jesus, whether life tastes sweet or sour in any given moment. And in looking at the cross, we find all that we need of God's providence and sovereignty in order to trust him even when things go sideways in life. Part of what it is to be gospel-centered is to learn how to see any circumstances in our lives, whether we created them ourselves or whether they were brought into our lives by forces and things outside of our control and know with certainty that the goodness of God is running after us. That when our sin that we've coddled explodes and everything looks like it's falling apart around us, we're able to look at that and say, it is good of God to bring this into my life, to separate me from that sin. And I know God's good because I see his son on the cross in my place. This sin that he's trying to separate me from should have put me there, but he went there in my place instead. It means that we see that God can be good when things outside of our control create bitter circumstances in our lives because his ways aren't our ways. They're higher than ours. He could be doing something through us and through our experience that will absolutely change eternity for people. And that's good. And it's kind of him to do those things in our lives. To act in such a way that he would be preeminent and that his purpose is would be achieved. So for a person who's following after Jesus, the honest cry of our heart in any and every situation should be like the bridge to this song that we're about to sing. Your goodness is running after. It's running after me. Regardless of what our circumstance might be. Bitter, sweet, or something benign. The goodness of God is chasing after us. Let's sing together.